This morning we're continuing our Big Ideas of the Bible series. Uh, and specifically this morning we are looking at the study of sanctification. Uh, before we do so, I want to let you guys know a little bit more about me. As the youth pastor here, I think it's important for you to know that I am not your typical youth pastor. I have a love-hate relationship with sports. I love them in the sense that they're awesome. I hate them in the sense that I'm not good at them. And so we go to play ultimate frisbee with the kids, and I'm trying desperately not to trip over my own feet or get dunked on by my students, uh, which they do actually more often than I'd like to admit. Um, But growing up, I loved the game of baseball. I fell in love with the game of baseball. I don't know if it was the sunflower seeds out at the fields or putting on the fun socks or what it was, but I fell in love with the sport growing up. And so we would go with my dad and my two younger brothers, and we would just go out and just hit ground balls and just do batting practice and have a ton of fun. It was a great, great game uh, for me growing up. And I became a part of a little league team that was actually really, really good. We won back-to-back league championships. And so I don't know where that puts us on the scale of like the Patriots and the Yankees, but we're up there somewhere, I think. Um, experts have debated that. But it was a ton of fun. Um, I, a part of little league that I loved was that they gave, at the end of every game, a game ball to the player that they said most contributed to the win. Now, I say that, I think maybe it was required that every kid got a ball because I got two. Um, and I was, again, not very good. But everybody on the team, all the coaches and all the players would sign the game ball and they would give it to you at the end of the game. And it was, uh, it was awesome. I, I got two and I loved it. I took those uh, and I took them home and I put them up on my dresser. Uh, and for like a junior high kid, that's like as much you're going to do to display something. But it was, it was great. It was a big part of uh, my success in sports. I kind of peaked right then. Um, <laughs> And so part of my job at home was every Saturday I would go and my job was to dust the house. And so when I got to my brother's room, I would just take their trophies and just kind of toss them on the bed. When I got to my room, I would carefully take my game balls off and set them on my bed to make sure that they weren't getting scuffed up. They weren't getting hurt. Like these guys were going to be safe because they were so important to me. I'd put them in a special place because they were special. And one day as I got older into high school, uh, yes, I still had Little League game balls up in high school. Okay, it's fine. Um, I was cleaning the house and noticed that uh, my game balls weren't sitting on my dresser anymore. And I started asking around. I started looking. Maybe they had rolled off my dresser. Maybe they'd gone somewhere else. And I don't quite know what had happened. But at some point, my younger brother, who was actually a really good athlete, had taken them and used them for batting practice. I know. I've actually never seen my dad, my dad cry that hard. I've never seen him be so sad, but he was so brokenhearted in that moment because he realized this thing that was special to me, this thing that I had set apart and made unique, he had treated it as just a normal thing. It had been used just like a normal baseball, but this had had special meaning that this thing was supposed to be set apart. Now, the reason that story connects for us today is because the word sanctification, this this term that we use or maybe you haven't heard before, means that very thing. It means to be set apart and made distinct. And so we're going to dive into this huge theological idea this morning. Uh, It is not going to be funny as often as I might like it to be. You're going to feel like you're in seminary from, you know, probably now till closer to noon than I would like. But... It's really, really important for us to understand what we're talking about in this passage and what we're talking about with this theological idea. So to start 
our understanding of sanctification. We need to start with our definition and purpose. We need to look at our definition and purpose of sanctification. So the definition that we're going to use is this. Sanctification is the part of salvation in which believers are set apart. Our definition of sanctification is that sanctification is the part of salvation in which believers are set apart. Now, hold on. We've got to break a couple things down here, right? Part of salvation can get a little weird. Jared, I was here two weeks ago. I remember Brian Fisher said I was saved in that one moment, and I had eternal security for the rest of my life. So now you're talking about there's another part of salvation. Well, yes, we are. Because thankfully, our God is big enough that he cares enough about you to have a salvation plan in mind that both gives you security for the future and salvation for the here and now. That God's plan of salvation is one in which he says that by grace through faith, you are declared righteous before me the moment you believe. And your future is secure. And yet, at the same time, God cares enough about you not just to leave you with a secure future, but to invest in where we are now. And so that part of salvation is what we call sanctification. This process in which God is setting us apart here in this Christian life now so that we can be saved from the consequences and realities of sin. So it is a part of salvation, but it's also for believers then. Sanctification is not something we should expect or look for from people who don't believe in Jesus. This is a part of the Christian life, meaning it's important to us for us to recognize that moment of justification, that moment of being made right before God comes first. And so if it's a part of salvation in which believers are set apart, what does this set apart term mean? Well, I'm going to look at a couple instances of how this word is used in the scripture. And the first I'm going to look at is in 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 10, scripture tells us this. And Jehu ordered, sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And that's very informative. I know. So we can walk out with that, right? No. Let's talk a little about what this is happening. Jehu has been made king in Israel. And Jehu looks at God's people and sees that they are worshiping another God. They are worshiping Baal. And so Jehu decides we need to get rid of this idol worship. We can't allow this to happen in our country. And so we need to bring all of those, this solemn assembly who worship Baal into one place so that we can take care of this idolatry once and for all. And so Jehu uses this term sanctify. Now, we hear sanctification, we hear sanctify, we think righteousness, we think performance, we think how we're doing spiritually, but this isn't even a spiritual term. It's literally just set apart a place, make room, like make a reservation for there to be a solemn assembly for this. So that's a Hebrew example of this term. Let's look at it in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 6 says this. In a passage most of us are familiar with, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This word for hallowed is the same Greek word that we see that we're going to use as the basis for sanctification, for set apart. Now, as a kid, I didn't really know what that meant. Were we talking about Halloween? Are we talking about like what's going on here? We didn't use hallowed a lot whenever I was growing up. Sorry, mom and dad. But... What it means is, God, you are so big, you are so great, you are so other from us that even your name is distinct. You are so weighty, you are so majesty, you are so 
much different than who we are, that even your name is distinct. It's to be hallowed. It is to be set apart from other names. And so, this term sanctification, this idea of sanctification is defined by this process. It's a part of salvation in which we are being set apart. So let's look at, if that's the definition, what's the purpose then? We have the definition. Now, the purpose of sanctification is that God's people would be set apart to do what? We're going to argue to bring glory to him and to be a blessing to others. Now, the purpose of sanctification is that God's people would be set apart to bring glory to him and be a blessing to others. Well, biblically, where are we getting this from? Let's check it out. First Peter chapter 1. By the way, we're going to see a ton of scripture this week or today. Um, I will put them up on the screen. You don't have to flip around all the time. But First Peter chapter 1 says this. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So, okay, Jared, where's the sanctify word here? Well, that holy is a different translation of the term that we would use for be set apart. So we are called to be holy, to be set apart, because God has also set apart here. So get that. The purpose then of us being set apart is to reflect God's set apartness. The purpose of us being set apart is not that we would be moral people that feel good about being moral. It's not that we would look like the best Christians in all the world. It's so that when people see us, they don't see us. They see a reflection of the God that is in us. That's why I love that John Mark sang that song, Holiness is Christ in me. It is God being reflected in and through us. And so the purpose of our sanctification is that we shall be holy for I am holy, that we would be image bearers of our God. But not only that, let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So again... We're set apart as holy, but now we're adding a caveat here. Now we're set apart and we're useful to the master of the house. Well, and what use do we have? We're useful for good works. Now God is going to use these good works in us, again, not to glorify ourselves, not to make ourselves look better, but to make God look better. And by making God look better, God is doing that by using us to bless other people, to make a difference in the lives of other people, that the kingdom of God may come to this earth and that people may know who he is and what he's done. That's why the Beatitudes will tell us, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. God has caught us to be people who will have a positive impact on the life of others. And that's his purpose in sanctification. Not that we would feel good or not that we would look good, but that God would be glorified and that others would be blessed. So that's what we're working with. The purpose of sanctification is that God's people would be set apart to bring glory to him and be a blessing to others. But the reality is, guys, if I'm being honest, I miss this so often. And I feel like we do too. But as Christians, I get into my Christian life and I think about, okay, I need to go to my accountability group and I need to read the scripture and I need to pray and I need to make sure that I'm doing all these things and it can so easily become about my performance and how I feel better about myself. And I'm reminded of how whenever I was in college, my senior year, we moved into this great house. It had an awesome living room, a great backyard. We backed right up to Anderson Park. It was really, really great. And the year before, I'd been doing impact uh, and serving an impact, which is great. Um, but 
Uh, I, like many Aggies, had overcommitted myself. Shocker, right? Um, And I was dating the woman who is now my wife. And that year in Impact, I didn't have a healthy work-life balance, you might say, uh, and was not the best boyfriend. And so I walked into senior year thinking, okay, I want to be better at this. I want to do a better job at being invested in this relationship because I want to marry this girl and I don't want her to break up with me because those are divergent paths, okay? <laughs> so my goal was, okay, I, I want to do better. I want, I want to be a better boyfriend. And so I had this brilliant idea. My, my wife's birthday is at the beginning of the school year. I thought, let's throw her a huge birthday party in my house. Okay. And so I went through all of our impact Facebook groups and like all of our impact friends and invited them all to this house for this birthday party. And you might think, Oh, that sounds great. And then I tell you, my wife is a major introvert. Okay. Major introvert. Okay. So she walks into that and goes, Oh my my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And it's like, just, I mean, socially she's totally cool. It's fine. But, um, (laughs) That was not in any way, shape, or form something that was really meaningful to her. In fact, 20, 30 minutes into the party, I'm like looking around going, where's Abby? And I found her. She had found one of her closest friends who had come in town, and they'd literally gone into the hallway and closed the door so they like weren't around all the people. And the problem was there that it was Abby's birthday. This was supposed to be about Abby, and yet I'd made it about my failures, my inconsistencies as a boyfriend, and my attempts to try and overcome what had happened in the past. And sanctification is about God. It is about God being made known. And when we take this Christian life and make it about us and make it about our performance and make it about us feeling better about ourselves spiritually, we totally miss the point. And praise the Lord, he can still use it. But we absolutely miss the point. Sanctification itself is about God being glorified and about us being a blessing to others. That's its purpose. So if that's, what it look, if that's what it is, what does this process actually look like? If that's the purpose, what's the process? Well, sanctification is going to, we're going to see three things biblically. First, we're going to see it's commenced at justification. Sanctification is commenced. It begins at justification. Now, Jared, that gets a little confusing. Let's see where this is in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And such were some of you, Paul says. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Okay, wait, I thought you said justification was something a little different. It is. Theologically, Christians believe justification is that moment when by grace, through faith, on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you are made right with God. It's a courtroom term. Justification is a term and an idea that says God looked at you and previously you were guilty and now he says you're not guilty. So it happens in an instance. And yet Paul points out that even in that moment of justification that is separate from sanctification, your sanctification begins. Because even the process of God looking at you and saying you are now washed, you are clean, sets you apart and makes you different. So your sanctification begins at justification It doesn't matter what happens after that. It doesn't matter what you do. Your sanctification starts at justification because it's the work of God. It's something God is doing in you. And interestingly enough, that's going to carry on because not only is sanctification commenced at justification, but it continues throughout our Christian life. 
It's going to continue throughout the rest of our Christian life. Check this out. First Corinthians, I mean, Philippians chapter one that we looked at earlier said this. Paul said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Notice what he's saying. God began that good work in you when you were washed by Jesus' blood. And he will bring it to completion. He will work. He will do. God is accomplishing this thing throughout the entirety of our Christian life. It's happening. So if this thing's happening, how is it happening? 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is happening not because you are white-knuckling your sin, not because you're getting up at 5 a.m. for an accountability group. It's not happening because of what you're doing. It's happening because of God. The God that rescued and redeemed you eternally is the God that's rescuing and, re- rescuing and redeeming you right now. The God of peace is the one who is sanctifying you completely. This is not something that you're doing and a work that you're doing on your own. And so if God's doing the work, what is his goal? Well, this verse tells us, I love it. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's goal is that our whole spirit, soul, and body would be kept blameless. Now, as a kid that's grown up in the church, that verse freaks me out a little bit initially. Because I go, oh my gosh, okay, I've got to be blameless soul, spirit, and body. And so I start thinking about all the ways that I'm not blameless in those areas. And then I look back at the beginning and go, no, this is the Lord God who is accomplishing these tasks. God is doing these things. God did not rescue and redeem you by his own power just to say, all right, go get them, right? He said, I am the power behind what's happening in your life. I'm the one who will make you pure and blameless. God is accomplishing this thing. Now, we now to go back at this point, though, because we looked at a verse earlier that looks a little contradictory. 2 Timothy 2, we read earlier, says this. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Okay, Jared, hold on. You said God's doing the work, but now Paul's telling me that we can cleanse ourselves. So how does that work together? That's a great question. That's a really, really good question. Biblically, what we hold to is we believe that God is the one doing the work, but he calls us, he offers us the opportunity to participate in the process. That God is saying, yes, I will be the one moving and working, but you have a call and a responsibility to participate and to engage in what God is doing. And so if we participate in this process, then we make ourselves vessels for honorable use. Now, if you don't participate, it's not like, Your future is threatened. There are some believers, some of my best friends from seminary, in fact, read scripture and they read it and they say that if you're not participating in the process, then your whole salvation is threatened. I see why they think that. I think they're reading the scripture and trying to do their best to understand it. We here at Grace read the scripture differently. We believe that your sanctification And your participation in sanctification doesn't pose a threat to your justification. That because God has rescued you because of what he's done and not because of what you've done, then your works don't threaten the work of the Lord. But that's not an excuse for us to then sit on our couches spiritually and eat Doritos or something. Like it's not 
an excuse for us to just sit back and chill. And here's why. If you, ha- if you do have your Bibles open, I'd love for you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Just back a few pages to the left. I put the main verse we're going to highlight, but I want to read verses 11 through 13 for everyone. Paul says this, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Notice what this says here. No one can build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, Christ is our foundation for each and every one of us. No one can have a different foundation for that, except Paul then says, now you can build on that foundation. The foundation doesn't change. Jesus doesn't change. But what you build on that is what will be tested by fire. Well, what does that mean? Well, here at Grace, we believe that for believers, we will be judged in the end. Not whether or not you're going to heaven or hell because that foundation is Christ. That can't be changed. But you're going to be judged based upon how you built on that foundation. You're going to be judged. Did you build on that with gold, with silver? Or did you build on that with wood and hay and straw? Did you invest well in the kingdom? Or did you invest poorly? And so there are going to be real consequences for those that invest poorly. And real rewards for those that invest well. Not eternal life. That's not on the table. But real true consequences and rewards as you face our Father. And so, if this is what we hold to, okay, then this Christian life is one that we are called to participate in and called to be a part of. So it continues throughout our Christian life. And then finally, we look, and sanctification process is completed at glorification. It's completed at glorification. Now, we've got a lot of shun words today, all right? We have justification. Glorification is theologically the idea and the term that we use to describe the moment when everything in this world is made right. When Christ returns and we as humans are made into the people that God had intended us to be. The sin of this world is removed. The sin in our hearts is removed. And we become the glorified version of ourselves. And so that's where we see in Philippians 1, 6, that Paul is saying is the promised future for us. That is the day of Christ Jesus. That is when our sanctification becomes complete. So congratulations, you just finished ST 104 at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, your tests will be in the back, and if you can turn those in by Monday, that'd be great. Um, no. This is some heavy things, and this can be a little confusing, but the reality is, I think we've got a decently clear picture of this sitting right across the street from us at George Bush in Texas. See, whenever I was at Texas A&M, I got an email saying, you have become an Aggie. Some of you may, old Ags may have gotten an actual letter. That's awesome. Um, I got an email uh, that said, hey, congratulations, you've been accepted into Texas A&M. And at that moment, I became an Aggie. I became a part of the Aggie family, 
All right. Now you could choose to go to fish camp or not. You could go and you could spend all your time in Evan's library or uh, actually go to the football games or choose not to go to the football games. That's okay. You're still an Aggie, right? But you get that option. You get that opportunity to participate in the Aggie-ness of Aggieland or not. And then a day comes, for some of you, it's getting your ring. For some of us, five, six years later, it's graduation, right? Um, when you are completing your time at Texas A&M, you become a former student. You're still an Aggie. You're still a part of this family, but that time is complete. And spiritually, we see this similar idea. That just like when you were accepted, you are justified and brought into this family. And God is giving you the opportunity to participate in something great here. The same way you're given the opportunity to participate in the Aggie family. See what I did? And then there's a moment coming when we will be glorified. A moment coming when things will be completed here on this earth. And God will have the future that he intends for us. And the biggest difference between those two things is the fact that at A&M, you work for your grades. You work to get in and you work to graduate. And you do absolutely no work to secure your own salvation in this place. God has offered you the opportunity to participate, but none of your works are what completes this for you. None of your works are what got you into the family of God. This is all the work of the Lord. But he's calling us to participate. He's calling us to be a part of something that's great. And so if that's the reality, if that's what this Christian life looks like, okay, then how practically do we live this out? What does this purpose and this process change for us in our lives? So we're going to look at this. Here's a quote from Martin Luther from a defense and explanation of all articles. Luther says this, this life for the Christian is not godliness, but growth in godliness, not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not now what we shall be, but we are on the way. The process is not yet finished, but it has begun. This is not the goal, but it is the road. And so we look at the Christian life and recognize we are becoming. We are on a road. And for those of us, if you've wrestled like me with this idea that somehow, some way, I will work myself to be spiritually okay, it's not happening. This life is not us reaching some spiritual destination or marker where we can just chill there until Christ returns. That's not the point. God has us on a road. God has us in a process of becoming more like him to reflect him to this world and be a blessing to other people. That's the purpose. That's what this is. That's what we're doing. And so what does that look like for you? For us, it is moving from sin to good works. That we are being set apart from sin to good works. So we're going to pick just a couple areas. There may be areas in your life where you're saying, I need, I need some help there. It may not be ones we've covered, and that's okay. I would encourage you, have some conversations with some people. But in these specific areas, I'm going to encourage you to think about a couple things. What does it look like to be set apart from sin to good works and our idolatry of self? We talked about this a little bit, but self can be an idol for us. Self isn't bad. Knowing who you are and who God made you to be isn't bad. But when you begin to idolize yourself, when you begin to idolize your self-righteousness, your spiritual performance, that's when things start to go astray. And so within 
the Christian life, what's our call? What is God asking us to do? He wants a posture of humility. As we are set apart from sin to good works, we move from idolatry of self to a posture of humility. And guys, I don't know where you are, but please, one of the best ways you can do this is get involved in a small group. The humility it takes to say, I can't do this spiritually on my own. I cannot figure the Bible out. I can't solve the sin issues in my life. I'm humbling myself by coming to a group. Actually, bringing myself, not just I'm showing up when you guys are studying the Bible, but actually I'm willing to give of myself is a movement in this direction that God has called us to. That you are posturing yourself and putting yourself in a place for God to do great work in your life. As we give up that idolatry of I know best, I need to look best, and we're saying I am broken and I need others set apart from sin to good works in our idolatry of sex. And the narrative of this culture is that sex is what you need and that feeling, that experience, that moment, that closeness is what you need more of. And you're free. You're free to have that. We encourage you to go do that. That's the narrative of the culture. And it's a lie. It is idolizing a thing that God created. Sex, God, sex is something that God gave as a gift. But he never meant for it to be an idol. He never meant for it to be the thing that you believe is going to fix you. And so spiritually, we posture ourselves with thankfulness. If you haven't, a few years ago, uh, if you haven't listened to this yet, Blake Jennings did an amazing sermon on Genesis chapter 3. I really encourage you to go to our website and check it out. Where he talked through Adam's and Eve's initial sin and did a fantastic job of pointing out For them, it boiled down to not being grateful and thankful and seeing the abundance of what God has given. And I fear that our sexualized culture can be driven back to that idea and that principle and reality. That we are not truly thankful for what the Lord has given us. Your marriage, if you're married, is a gift. Your singleness, if you're single, is a gift from the Lord. And there are things to be grateful for there. And I don't know what thankfulness looks like to you. Maybe you need to practice being thankful openly with other people. Maybe you need to write thankfulness down. I don't know what works best for you, but I can tell you that if you don't posture yourself with thankfulness, you will fall victim to the idolatry, specifically the idolatry of sex in this culture and from this narrative that we're being told. And finally, we're set apart from the idolatry of safety. We went on a family vacation to Colorado a few weeks ago, and it was fantastic, but the whole time I found myself freaking out internally. Like, there's mountains, and my kids could just roll down them, and like, <laughs> who's going to catch them? I don't know, a bear. Um, <laughs> but I did. Like, I, I'm, for whatever reason, I don't think of myself as like a freak out type of guy, but there are times when my kids get hurt or they're doing something that could potentially hurt them where I just way overreact. And safety's not bad, right? Like, nobody should walk out of here and go walk across 2018 just for fun. Like, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is the idolatry of safety is an issue in our culture. This idea that just because you're safe, you'll be good. Just because you're safe, everything's okay. Just because you're safe, that's going to fill your heart is a problem. And it's one that our culture tells us, whether it's from financial planning to this 
picture of this beamer and how safe it is. Like everything in our lives is telling us safety is important. Safety is important. And we can start idolizing safety. And the reality is God didn't call us to be safe. He wants us to be wise. He doesn't want us to be foolish. But he also told us to go to the nations. And right now the nations don't look that safe. But we're told to go. And so maybe for you, what you need is to take as a posture of trust. Maybe some of the mission trips have come back over these last few weeks and you've listened to them and you're, something in you is going, I, I need to do that. I need to take that step. And this seems like the craziest time to start going to the nations. But you know what? We can take a posture of trust. I can tell you Grace Bible Church does a fantastic job of vetting our trips and making sure that we aren't putting our people in unnecessary danger. But it doesn't mean that it's always going to be perfectly 100% safe. And that's okay, because we can trust the Lord with the fact that his call for us to make disciples is greater than that. Maybe for you, it's not that big moment of going on a trip, but maybe it's the daily moment of living out your faith. Maybe where you need to practice trust is recognizing the fact that even though you are scared of what your peers are going to think about you actually living out your faith, that you can trust that the Lord is big enough to overcome that. That you can posture yourself to believe that I can be bold about what I believe. Not rude, not a jerk, but I can be bold about saying, this is the God who I love and the God who I serve, and he loves you as well. And maybe you need to posture yourself in trust and say, man, there's this coworker or there's this person at school that I just, I need to just talk to them. I just need to have that conversation. And it's going to affect my everyday life if it goes bad, but I'm posturing myself in trust in the Lord enough to say, this is what you've told me to do. And so the Christian life is this process of us being set apart, of us being made into a different community whose purpose is to glorify God and to be a blessing to others. And so we get the unique opportunity today to celebrate one of the things that makes us different, and that's specifically communion. And as the men get up and, and move to the back and the band comes forward, I really want to show you guys that, and I want to make it clear that this process of sanctification is for us as a community. I think at times we come in and we want to take the Lord's Supper together. And uh, we've been told, if you're like me, we need to reflect on, am I taking the Lord's Supper in the right spirit? And that's good. But for me, that can become so internal. It became so self-righteous that I miss the fact that while the Lord is moving and working in my life, he's also moving and working in the lives of others. And this is a celebration of who God is and what he's done, of the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And so we've talked about this and around this tonight, but the reality is that none of this happens. Our salvation doesn't happen without Jesus. Without the Jesus who came and lived a perfect life and died for us in our place to pay the penalty that we owed. And so that's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating him today. So spend some time in this moment. The band's going to start playing. And in this moment, I invite you, spend some time reflecting on your own heart. But also, as part of that, reflect on what God is doing amongst these people. And celebrate that as well. Paul tells us this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night that when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do remember what Christ has done in order to make us a family and to set us apart. We thank you for that. And Father, we pray and ask that we would be a people that glorify you, not ourselves, but God, that you would use this day and these truths to draw us back to the grace that set us free and to drive us forward to the hope that we have in the future. I thank you for these people. I thank you for what you're doing in their lives. And I pray that you would continue to help us honor you together. We pray these things in your son's name by the Spirit. Amen. Let's stand and sing this song in response.